the way I view sport is that it's it's a healing process for everyone. It's a way to connect to the outdoors. It's a way to connect to our natural world, our other than human beings, as well as each other um, to feel a sense of community. And that was that moment. And that's what created like this more motivation to drift away from mechanical engineering, which was the path I was kind of going for with schooling and everything and move more towards adaptive sports. It started building this empathy of like, oh, like this is what it's about. It's about building community. It's about the love of the feeling that we get, that sense of freedom that we usually don't feel day to day because we live in such an ableist world. Because of these power struggles and power dynamics, it's causing a lot of inequities that are happening in this world. And it's causing more and more wealth and more and more privilege to be detrimental to a lot of those oppressed communities. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Rome podcast, the podcast where we talk about adventure with purpose with some of the most iconic and interesting folks in the outdoor adventure space. Trying to get into some conversations maybe you haven't heard before, some insights, different sides of people. Myself and Corey Richards, alpinist, nat geo photographer, king of the conversation we do this every week so thanks for being here this week very special guest basu sojitra when he was nine months old he lost his leg and since then basu has not looked back the help of his parents brother and friends basu has built up the confidence to face all sorts of new challenges with grace courage strength humor an unwavering determination. When he was living in India, he witnessed crazy poverty and he's been living most of his life with a disability. He looks at these experiences as a blessing. They have allowed him to truly hone in on his ability to empathize with others. He continues to strengthen his vigor through his work and advocacy for those who face mental and physical limitations. Basu continues to inspire others and be a positive influence in their own communities by pushing his personal limits and he's pushing others, other people's limits as well. And he's encouraging people to believe in themselves and their own unique abilities. He's got a crazy cool motto, ninja sticking through the woods to bring intersectionality to the outdoors. And he continues to challenge the biases that go with being a person of color and with a disability through the work his work with In Solidarity Network, and he is the first adaptive athlete to be on the North Face team, as well as his previous work as the adaptive sports program director for Eagle Mount Bozeman and co-founder and the program director for Earth Tone Outside. He's a huge advocate for diversity, equity, and inclusion, and he works with a lot of local NGOs and He's a super interesting guy all the way around. We're incredibly pleased to have him. So please welcome Vasu Sajitra. Vasu. How's it going? Good. How are you? Kind of it's wild. good to see you, dude. It's been a minute. Yeah, right? I'm hoping you don't mind the sign behind me. No, so. I, we, yeah, we mind. Take it down. We don't want to be political. <laughs> and for those who are listening and not able to see us, Basu's got a beautifully crafted 
sign that says <laughs> Black Lives Matter right on mounted on his skis uh right in a prominent position so thanks for bringing that yeah let's i mean sure. let's thank, just thank thanks for bringing yeah, the, for the conversation immediately yeah yeah <laughs> yeah yeah that's what i'm here for um yeah thanks dps for the mounting i haven't used them in a while so <laughs> <laughs> might as well try to use them in some other useful manner Hey, dude, let's, uh, I want to start this way. We always have uh, our guests introduce themselves just because it's, it's kind of an interesting way to hear how um, uh, you view yourself in the world, but also uh, it, it, then, we can, then we can give a more proper bio. So as we get going, um, will you just say who you are, where you come from, and then we'll dive right in? Yeah, for sure. So my name is Vasu Sojitra. I go by the pronouns he, him, his, um, and I am on the stolen and ancestral lands of the Crow, Northern Cheyenne, Salish Kootenai, Shoshone Bannock, Blackfeet, and many others that called and called this um, land home, aka Bozeman, Montana. Um, and I identify as a person with a disability, a physical disability, um, as and as well as a person of color, first-generation Indian American. Um, and I've given myself this, uh, this identity as well, is the friendly neighborhood disruptor, um, along with a biodiversity steward when it comes down to it, um, trying to make sure that I work in an intersectional manner when um, talking and working and putting into action a lot of these issues that we are running into in our world nowadays. So. Um, that's kind of how, how I identify myself. Would you, would you um, just for, that brings up a great, immediately this helps us like just move the conversation along. Cause I feel like you have a lot to say strictly in, in how you identify. I think it's beautiful that you've found a way to, uh, to be so forthright and articulate about that. But can you explain or define what intersectionality means uh, to our listeners, for those who aren't familiar with it, or at least how you would define that? Yeah, 100%. Um, so intersectionality was a term coined by a black woman of color activist, Kim Kimberly Crenshaw. Um, she also runs a podcast called Intersectional Now, Intersectionality Now, I believe. Um, and um, it means that our identities, how we navigate the world is based on different la layers of privilege and power as well as oppression and marginality so for me i'm a man i'm a cis heterosexual man so i benefit off of patriarchy um, when it comes down to it you know compared to the women and the femmes in my life um, and other not gender non-conforming folks who are affected by sexism homophobia um, and any other kind of gender-based violence. Um, so where I benefit on that end, I also am oppressed as a person of color and a person with a disability um, within the systems that we are um, abiding by at the moment. So racism and ableism. Um, ableism is discrimination against people with disabilities. Um, so that's kind of a short synopsis of what it might, it means uh, what it means so it's um it kind of just breaks down our privilege our oppression our marginality and our power that we hold in society 
in structural ways. So it's, it's more of a, it just means like it not hints at, but it, it actually motions towards um, the more granular or layered uh, concepts of how we identify. Is that a, I mean, that's a very, very simple way of putting it, but is that, is that correct? Yeah, for the most part. Yeah, exactly. And the way I see it is, you know, I'm more than the sum of my parts as well. You know, I'm more than a person of color. I'm more than a person with a disability. I'm more than a skier. Um, all these identities aren't myopic um, in the sense that we don't have to abide by a lot of these stereotypes that come into play, um, especially because stereotypes cause a lot of unconscious biases that happen within our society. So trying to just break those down and make sure that, you know, we are humans first and making sure that our rights and our privileges and our opportunities are all equal um, when it comes down to the bigger picture. So let's just back up a minute because <laughs> like, this is awesome because we're already in kind of deep for, for, I think for some of our listeners, we're already probably over their head in some way. So, oh, which probably. is good. Um, <laughs> that's good. You know, <laughs> that's where we want to take them. I want people to be sort of feeling like they're drowning in some of these conversations because those are the conversations that, that, that means it's an important one, right? If you're swimming and you're cruising through it, um, we're probably not hitting at the stuff that, that, that actually needs to be talked about. But can you just walk us through your background a little bit? Because you do have a really interesting upbringing. Um, and you know, I've watched your TEDx talk. I know about you, but I, I've, I've, you know, I've read about you, I've read about your history, but it's, it is interesting that you moved to India, um, you know, sort of talking about your disability. And I don't, I don't want to retell an old story, but I do think for people that don't know you, uh, it is really interesting. Yeah, for sure. So I can kind of give a quick synopsis of my life. Um, so I was born in Connecticut, so I'm an American citizen based off that. And I contracted some sort of viral infection which caused um, septicemia to um, show up in my right leg and the doctors had to amputate it pretty much like incredibly quickly or I would not be here today. Um, so that was at the age of nine months old so pretty much a tiny little baby um, and I was in the hospital for pretty much that entire year I would say like Thing they told me like six to eight months or something along the lines of that I was in the hospital just recovering um, and after that my parents who are first or who moved here who emigrated here from India in the 80s decided it'd be important to connect back with family in India um, to feel that support feel that interdependency from our um, close family so we decided to move back to India at the age of two um, when I was when I was two uh, me, my parents, and my brother moved back to India. Gujarat is the state that we've um, predominantly called home. And Ahmedabad is the city. It's a pretty massive city in Gujarat. Um, and based off of that, we lived there for around five years. So I kind of had my, you know, developing years in India, in Gujarat, around, um, I guess, more Indian culture, Indian-based culture, which was nice to see more people like me. And then... Uh, Throughout that time, I was using a prosthetic leg. Um, and given, you know, two to seven is a pretty fast growing time for humans. My prosthetic leg, I would grow out of it. I would break it because I was fairly active here and there playing football or American soccer, whatever you want to call it. 
Um, and um, we'd constantly break it. We'd have to ship it back to the States for them to fix it. And then they would ship it back. So you can probably imagine how long that process takes. Um, and based off the medical equipment stuff, we decided to move back to the US, back to Connecticut to have you know better access to these resources, these medical aids and equipment for myself. Um, and just, you know, give more opportunity for me and my brother to be able to find some sort of success in life. So around six and a half, seven, moved back, started school, was the only brown, or not the only, but definitely the only brown person with a disability um, in my school, which was fairly homogenous and white. So I moved to a town called Glastonbury, Connecticut, um, and fairly homogenous, fairly white. Um, so imagine, you know, a brown kid moving from India with one leg incorporating into a white culture that doesn't really know how to work around disability. So it was kind of a big culture shock when I was younger. So it was kind of a, it was a big, uh, big transformation process as well, um, when it came down to it. So that's kind of, that, that was the journey to the States. And then I was fairly active here and there, um, picked up skateboarding because of I don't know if you all have watched the show Rocket Power but really stoked about that show when I was younger yeah <laughs> um there was some brown kids skateboarding and surfing and all doing all these extreme sports and stuff and I me and my brother slowly got into that which is awesome um picked up skateboarding my brother wanted to go snowboarding and I was like how do I go snowboarding so I decided to go skiing instead and the ski instructor had no idea how to teach me. So I was just teaching myself everything at the age of 10 and kind of just grew into that, fell in love with it um, serendipitously. And I said this in my TED talk too, is um, there was another one-legged skier that came up and said hi to me on my first day of skiing at this random little hill in Connecticut, Ski Sundown. Like what is the chance of that? It's kind of like this destined really like out of body experience moment um which was kind of wild now that i think about it always you know so that was a cool little experience to see that human you know ripping around on one leg and just saying hi and then cruising off i mean he wasn't compared you know to other athletes adaptive athletes he wasn't like outrageously um, um athletic in that sense but he was still doing it so that was a cool cool representation there um and yeah, so from that, I just kind of started doing some research online and like looking up the Paralympics and all these prolific adaptive skiers. And I was like, whoa, this is like a whole different world out here. Um, so I just started skiing more and more. And again, no one was really teaching me anything. So I was just teaching myself how to ski um, throughout the years and pretty much just grew my ski ability on that sense um, throughout high school, throughout college, and now as a pro athlete. When did that happen? Like when, I mean, cause as an athlete, I know it's, there's this, you know, in our stories, the stories that we tell all of a sudden we're sort of like pro, you know? Right. Um, <laughs> when, and that doesn't work that way. It's like, it's this long, weird sort of sloggy uphill battle. And then all of a sudden you get to, you get to say that, but, but I think it's an interesting, how did that happen for you? Um, with a lot of support, I would say. Um, 
so at first I was learning all this stuff and like my parents were very supportive in helping me acquire some gear or rental gear or whatnot. Skiing is just so freaking expensive. I can see why folks of color don't have the opportunities to go skiing just because of the price point. Um, but uh, yeah, I would just, you know, just go a bunch of times. Whenever, whenever you're starting something new, it's like you go five or six times, maybe a season, especially ski oriented. Um, yeah, I just pushed myself more and more. Um, in high school, went a lot more pretty much every single weekend, was on the ski team. Um, in, I decided to go to University of Vermont as well, up in Burlington, Vermont, um, which was awesome and had that access to the ski areas as well. So I just got better and better at skiing. Um, I would say I cut my teeth at uh, Mad River Glen. I don't know if you've heard of Mad River Glen. Um, yeah. Ski it if you can. That's where I, it I would say. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, that's where I cut my teeth. And it was just uh, kind of this aha moment of like, oh, shit. Like, I know how to ski now. This is super cool. Because it was there's no groomers there. There's only moguls and glades and like steep rocks and roots and all this stuff that you crazy trees yeah ice. crazy tight Lots trees yeah you're really selling it you guys are really yeah, selling right. it no it's, it's, like, it's like the glen. classic if you can mad river glen is is as an east coast skier is one of those places that has this cult following and there is a lot of pride in how difficult and not necessarily like difficult like you know in the west coast sense but just like tight and hard and rocky and like it's uh so shitty you know yeah yeah, yeah, yeah i mean it, like, but but when you grow up in the east coast it's awesome you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it makes you a good yeah. skier <laughs> well, I, I get it i get yeah. it but it's it sounds just like shitty which is uh, yeah. different you know so it's like come ski this shitty place and if you can right. do that then you're rad which is kind of yes. like to be fair, it's kind of like the climbing, alpine climbing in the Canadian Rockies. It's like, it's some of the raddest alpine climbing out there because it's so shitty, you know? It's, it's hard, so hard. Yeah. You know? right. It's so hard, yeah. Yeah, it's coming from the Utah place. guy, you know, the, you, you, right. you had it, we didn't even, I don't know when you first skied powder, Vasu, but I was like 18 years old. I didn't even know what that was, it, you know? It was just blue ice and- Yeah. <laughs> exactly right um it's funny you can't even get me to go skiing now because everybody in colorado is like oh the skiing's so great and i'm like i grew up in utah the skiing is not great here it's fine you know like it's yeah, but that's just me yeah. it's me that's me being an asshole um yeah i so I mean, we <laughs> yeah digress. we're definitely we digress out here for sure. definitely spoiled out here um yeah i mean mad river was like an incredibly difficult place to learn how to ski i would say not really many options for easy terrain so um pretty steep learning curve there and just once i got used to it it was just like this aha moment of like all right cool like now i'm keeping up with my friends and my friends are keeping up with me i'm jumping off of stuff as much as they are and just like going with it so um yeah that was an exciting moment um, and then uh, throughout the college career, you know, me and my friends are all about hiking, getting into the backcountry, backpacking, stuff like that through the outing club. And one of my friends and like, of course, watching all these ski films and stuff like we're like, how do we get out there too? Um, and get started looking into like backcountry skiing, of course, um, in Vermont. And I wanted to get out there. So we started finicking and like tinkering around 
um, with random stuff in the garage or at the outing clubhouse just to figure out what's possible to tour on one leg with outriggers. Outriggers are pretty much forearm crutches with little skis on the bottom. Um, right. And uh, you have a cool yeah, no, name of, for those though, Vasu. What do you, your motto? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, I call them ninja sticks. I call all of my crutches ninja sticks. Um, the way I, way I have, have, I guess, created this narrative is that it's reframing what disability looks like in our world. Especially for me, I look at it in a positive sense. I'm very prideful of being a person with a disability or a disabled person. And I really enjoy using my ninja sticks in whatever capacity that they allow me to use them. Um, so it's like this positive reframing instead of like looking at medical equipment as this like wah wah sap, sap story like you know people with disabilities are a problem or like broken. Um, my idea and we can go into this further is um, that people with disabilities are people first always and we should be pri like we should be okay with who we are. Um, it's more the barriers that society puts on us that has created these horrible stigmas about disability um, instead of the people themselves. So um, that's kind of the reframing that I'm going with Ninja Sticks. Um, it's kind of this positive, again, positive light into something that could potentially have a negative stigma to it um, and usually tends to. So that's kind of the, that's kind of the name that I've created for them. Um, Sorry, I, I, you were you were giving us the history on how how you engineered, um, you know, touring, and I interrupted you. I just wanted to oh, get that. Yeah, I could. I just a heads up. I'm really good at going off on tangents, so please stop me wherever. Um. <laughs> no, all good, man. That's this is this this podcast should be called the tangent. So right, it, it, it's good. Uh, but um, I'm curious about the engineering and of how you how you put that together. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I also, a little bit of background about me. I have an engineering degree as well from University of Vermont. So I was an engineer at, at the university or becoming an engineer at the University of Vermont. So I had this like technical knowledge of like trying to problem solve. Um, so we would, we would be tinkering and like my first iteration of backcountry ninja stakes or outriggers was, um, these plexiglass pieces that I cotter pinned on um, and those didn't those snapped in about 200 yards from the trailhead because um, plexiglass is not the best in cold weather I should have realized that um, so then went back to the drawing board and we're just like you know what if we just put skins on the bottom of the outriggers um, those would work fine so those worked fine here and there on hard pack days or group, like if you're just touring up a a closed ski area on a groomer or whatever those worked fine but then once it was powder that's when i was like post holing to my shoulder to my elbow to my hand like just it was a heinous climb up the hill just over and over post holing um so we went back to the drawing board and we're like okay we have to make something better a little bit more surface area and we found these msr snowshoe extenders um they look like a, like a house like a frame um, a silhouetted house and pretty much made it so I could take them on and off with uh, back, you know, little like skin um, uh, toe clips and belay strap in the back. And I've been using that since like eight years now. So um, those have not 
those have worked wonders for me in any terrain imaginable. Do you have a, a photo or something that we can put in the show notes to, to demonstrate what you're talking about? Yeah, I could, I'll take a photo of them. And I also have other attachments. I, uh, because I started getting into steep skiing as well, um, I was like, yo, I need something to self-arrest. So um, a friend of mine welded me a bracket um, for steep skiing. And it's just like this, I should have actually had it with me on here. Um, it's it's on the crutch, but it, it's like an ice axe that comes out like eight inches out of the crutch. Um, so that's that's been a cool tool to use on some of the steeper stuff that I've been skiing or going up or booting up. Um, yeah, I'll send some photos of that. How sure. long did you go without a tool for self-arrest? I mean, where you're, as I've been watching you over the years, you know, when you do these super steep shoots, uh, you know, that's one of the thoughts I have always like, cause you can see the pressure you're putting on your out, you know, on your ninja sticks, like, yeah. and, and on your leg. And I'm, I always was wondering that, like, how long did you go before you're like, yeah, I need it. I need to, or did you have any instances where you <laughs> didn't have, you know, a, I, a, I probably went too long without him. I say, <laughs> um, so that's, that's the wild part. I was like, oh, crap, I definitely need to make something just because of the terrain that I keep choosing to go down. Um, but I also feel incredibly, incredibly comfortable on a ski, on a single ski, on a single edge. And the fact is, like, I use my crutches on a daily basis for the past, I don't know, even when I had the prosthetic, probably like 28 years, pretty much, you know. So the fact that I have this, like, um, innate ability to use my outriggers or ninja stakes or crutches as like my detachable limb is incredibly useful when I'm skiing as well. Um, and it, and for yeah. kickflips on your skateboard, yeah, I've exactly, seen that. Exactly right. It's, it's so <laughs> sick. Yeah. Check out, check like, out Vasu's Instagram if you want to see some pretty cool tricks. Yeah. A little different, right? Not many people skateboarding with crutches. There's a few, but um, maybe not at the same capacity. I wish there were more. I'm always hoping there's more people doing what I'm doing. And I'm, a lot of people have reached out to me on how to make the, the snowshoe attachments and stuff. And I'm like, hell yeah, like, let's go touring. And they're like, I'm just mostly using it to walk in my backyard. I'm like, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so. But that brings, that, that brings up another like good question is you've become – um, an advocate and an ally uh, and very outspoken. When did you, when did you realize that you were more than an athlete? When did you make the, start to make this sort of bigger leap towards activism and allyship? What, yeah. and how did that happen? Um, so it all, it all actually happened within the adaptive sports world. So back in Vermont, before I moved to Montana, um, I was interning with Vermont Adaptive at Sugarbush. Um, and I had this, there was another aha moment. Pretty much my life is just built on aha moments, I realized. Um, <laughs> I'm going to start calling you aha. Yeah, right? What's up, aha? <laughs> aha. Um, and one of our kiddos skiing was being tethered with some rope. Um, down like this green circle of a run 
that most of us, you know, more proficient skiers would just call like a run to get back to the lodge. And he was having the time of his life, like just like hooting and hollering, dancing, and just like loving life. And I was like, yo, this is, this is what it's about. You know, it's not about skiing, but it's about the feeling and freedom we get from skiing and all these activities. Um, and that kind of clicked for me. And I was like, you know, this is the same feeling I get when I'm with my friends skiing some of this harder terrain, but it doesn't have to be the, that way for everyone. Um, you know, I, the way I view sport is that it's, it's a healing process for everyone. It's a way to connect to the outdoors. It's a way to connect to our natural world, our other than human beings, as well as each other um, to feel a sense of community. And that was that moment. And that's what created like this more motivation to drift away from mechanical engineering, which was the path I was kind of going for with schooling and everything and move more towards adaptive sports. And once I moved out to Montana, I started working at Eagle Mount Bozeman, um, moved into the adaptive sports director role for the past six years and was just, just finished up this summer with them and COVID kind of came crashing in and um, I had to, I wasn't, I'm not working there anymore, but um, that entire six year process made me develop a more like stronger empathy for the families, the caregivers, the participants that have disabilities, whether it's cognitive, intellectual, physical. Um, and, you know, it just, it started bu building this empathy of like, oh, like this is what it's about. It's about building community. It's about the love of the feeling that we get, that sense of freedom that we usually don't feel day to day because we live in such an ableist world. Um, and yeah, kind of that grew from there. I started learning about ableism and disability justice from that. I started connecting the dots with intersectionality as I brought up earlier um, and racial justice and with a local organization here in Bozeman. Um, and from that started like learning and connecting with a lot more affinity spaces around the country like Brown Girls Climb and Flash Foxy and Indigenous Women Hike um so all these folks that are doing this work as well have been doing it prior to my engagement so um was starting to connect with them there's this huge dei revolution happening in the outdoors so you know wanted to make pretty much like i'm all about action so um i wanted to walk the talk and to walk the talk i needed to learn the language and like educate myself and break down my privilege and power and oppression and marginality as i was talking about earlier and just kind of go from there um that again like you're you're fucking throwing like it's such a great breadcrumb trail like this is you're you're crushing this because it makes it so easy you brought up some really interesting things in that last statement first and foremost um dissecting privilege and learning language um and then i want to get back to another question about how you've seen this DEI revolution um, sort of exploding in the outdoor industry, specifically over the last month or two months, actually. Um, but, but first and foremost, can you talk a little bit about what it means and how you view learning this language? Because I think a lot of people are frustrated and I, and I, and I would say that it's part their privilege that, that lends to that frustration. Uh, I know that's true for me, but can you go through the process of what it means to learn the language around 
um, around DEI and around racial justice and around ableism? Because it's a, that is a process. Oh, for sure. And, you know, the, the working at Eagle Mount, working with, you know, folks with disabilities firsthand really showed me how powerful language is. Um, using the right terminology, using people first, so not saying, you know, autistic child, but child with autism or Down's child, instead of instead saying, you know, child with Down syndrome. So all these things are incredibly influential in building relationships with these more marginalized communities. And def experiencing that firsthand was that moment and understanding for me when it came to it. And I was just pretty much connecting the dots of like, okay, well, disability is a marginalized identity like also like different race and ethnicities are as well like there has to be different language that goes with it um so really breaking it down understanding it building empathy and understanding with a lot of folks that are going through um some of these harmful behaviors that society has put on them um was incredibly incredibly helpful in building these relationships genuine relationships um my end goal wasn't to like extract anything or anything like that it was just to build and create build bridges between different communities um, especially like race and disability um, and it was a it was a big learning process for sure but it was also something that I had taken part in when I was working at Vermont Adaptive as well as me growing my career um, with Eagle Mount as well so I would say like man those firsthand experiences was like were like the biggest biggest educators for me because usually like we don't in our schooling we just don't learn a lot of this stuff which is unfortunate like it's so important in building genuine trust and growth within the community and um yeah i was i was ready to dive head deep um and i am still ready to hide dive head first into a lot of these conversations uncomfortable what? if they may be I, I mean i think i understand this but why is the language so important? Why is putting a human first versus the disability first important? And, and how can you, I think that's really helpful for people to understand, you know, little um, vignettes of, of how impactful both positively and negatively the right or wrong uh, use of language can be. Right. Cause um a lot because it's dehumanizing i'd say so like if we're you know saying downs kid it just sounds con it's condescending it creates this power struggle between someone that might ha not have a disability with someone that does and then it makes the person feel inferior or superior so it creates this power struggle and that's not the case like we all live in this world it doesn't matter who we are we're gonna die no matter what time or age and we're affected by everything around us so like you know We've, we personally have created these power dynamics as humans. Um, and because of that, it's caused a lot of um, inequitable distribution of resources and opportunities, whether that be, you know, healthcare opportunities or education opportunities or access, you know, specifically to this conversation, access to the outdoors for a lot of these populations. So it's like, because of these power struggles and power dynamics, it's causing a lot of inequities that are happening in this world. And it's causing more and more wealth and more and more privilege to be detrimental to a lot of those oppressed communities. So, um, so in essence, when we say the wrong, when we say it, and right and wrong is 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 not the 
quite correct in terminology. That's not the right words right now for me, but I, I don't yeah. know how else to say it. But when we say it wrong, in essence, what you're saying is um, we perpetuate systems of inequity. So, and, and that lends itself to a further um, inequitable distribution of power, resources, wealth, all of those things. So even in our phrasing, in our day-to-day -day conversations, the mindfulness about putting people first versus uh, disability or an ism, right, um, is what helps shift the social dynamic and language. And that ultimately does feed into a more equitable system, if I'm reading you right. Is that, am I saying yeah, that right? Correct. Yeah, okay. yeah, totally, 100%. And the way I see it, and I, I've drifted away from right and wrong as well, because, you know, back in the day, it was technically, a, it was right to lynch black people, which is so messed up, right? So it's like, it's more, the way I look at it is um, just or unjust or immoral or moral or ethical or unethical or whatever um, it may be to start actually uplifting people instead of um, these more dehumanizing ways of looking at identity. It, hmm. But it's, I mean, you can be to be clear, because I, I think what's what's intimidating for people is that they hear words like moral and immoral. You can say something in an immoral way, and that doesn't make you a bad person. No, um, it makes you it makes you not necessarily educated or up to speed on the language, which is why it's so important to learn it. But it doesn't make you a bad person. I think that's unless you're choosing to do it to be harmful, right? Right. Exactly, and you know, like. I always recommend um, books on learning about anti-racism and all this kind of stuff. And um, a great, great author and advocate and activist, Ibram Kendi, who wrote How to Be an Anti-Racist, puts it really well of like, you know, being called a racist is not the end of the world. It's not a pejorative. It's not a dismissive word. It just means that you're being held accountable to something that you have to work on to make sure you're not going to be racist, you're going to be anti-racist. You know, the weird analogy that I always bring it back to is like, yo, if Corey, if I told you you smelled bad, like you're not going to take that as a dismissive thing. It's probably going to mean like you want to, you need to go shower, like right. you need to take some action items to like fix that one problem that might've caused, you know? So it's like, it's a very similar way of looking at it is like, yo, yeah, you're racist, but like there's ways you can, be actively anti-racist you know it's a full spectrum like i personally know i've done racist behaviors i still do am part of racist behaviors um day in and day out but like i'm actively trying to make sure i'm dismantling those racist behaviors and uplifting the communities in an anti-racist manner um so that that's hmm. kind of how i look at it especially with like those words too is like it's not it's not meant to be dismissive it's not meant to cancel you out it's made it's made make sure like these folks that are saying these horrible things are you know being checked on and then they can follow their own accountability in making sure harm is not done in the future and that's i mean that's something that we've we've talked a little bit about before but we actually haven't had a guest on who's been this versed or this vocal in this conversation we, we we've talked about other issues that that have um some of these topics woven into them but we haven't addressed it head on so i 
I, one thing that I want to say in this conversation and one thing that I've learned is as I've learned how racist I am uh, as a cisgendered white male uh, living in America, it's not about feeling guilty about being white. It's not about feeling guilty about um, where you were born in the system. It's, and it's not about feeling bad about being racist. It's about reframing what the word racist means. It's not, uh, I'm in the KKK. And every time I see a brown person, I think fucking terrible words. Or prejudice. I, I mean, just, you're that's yeah. a, the identification often is racial prejudice, right? Mm-hmm. As opposed to being being racist and part of a racist power structure. Right. So, you know, th- th- And so if you say, if I say, Corey, you're racist and you don't have any education, you think Ku Klux Klan. Right. You know, you think like, well, I don't hate black people. I don't, I'm not, I'm not prejudiced, but that's, that's sort of a, then this is just my understanding and I'm learning big time, but you know, it's a, it's an antiquated um, sort of an, an older view of what racist racism is. It's like from the fifties almost, right? Mm-hmm. Like we're in 2020 now. And so racial prejudice and racism, there is a, maybe if, if Vasa, you could, you could touch on that. I think that's where you were going, Corey, but just the, the, the fundamental difference between being in a power structure that is racist mm-hmm. and being racially prejudiced. Yeah. I mean, the thing is like racism is prejudice plus power. So um, in our system right now, like who is holding power is primarily the white population and who's creating these policies is primarily the white population. So and these policies are disproportionately affecting black indigenous people of color. Um, and no matter what framing we have, like that is incredibly racist. It's causing more disparities within these communities. And as I was saying, like these systems are all intersecting. So, you know, if I called you ableist, like, yeah, you know, every, literally every person without a disability is ableist in some manner. Um, we all are on the spectrum of like ableist and anti-ableist or ableist or racist and anti-racist. Like we all flux in between here and there, however we want, depending on our actions and our words and how we move through our spaces. Um, but it's really depending on like how, like when and how these actions will take place of how you identify it in that spectrum hopefully that's clearer <laughs> than before i mean it's complex but... it is comp it's it's complex right well, but that's I mean... that's the whole point about learning the language because for a lot yeah. of people especially our listeners who who can be quite siloed i mean we the outdoor community is pretty homogenous or has been you know and we are making and that's sort of the next question but that i want to ask but it's you know we we can be a pretty homogenized community we can be uh fairly um well we're just we've been white privileged for a long time um at least in america and and, and europe I, I, i'll i think that's a little bit of bullshit which part no no just from the standpoint of because i think it actually mirrors I, I I mean, it's what you're saying to a degree is that it's not diverse, but I think actually it is diverse. We just have a narrative that it's not diverse because the power structure in the industry is what you're saying. But in fact, when you look at it, it is, I mean, all the groups that you were, you were mentioning Vasu earlier, like they've been doing this work for a decade plus, and it's actually super 
super see, vibrantly diverse. It just hasn't been amplified oh, yeah. at all. Exactly. Yes, I'm not. Yeah, I, I'm not. So say, you, I actually, I'm, I got to push back on CJ here. That is a <laughs> new movement. That's not. That's yes. Ten years, dude. We're talking about a, a system that has been in place literally for 400 years. That's that's so ten years. Yeah, that's happening. But that's not, that is still not the larger narrative. We are moving towards a better system, which is what I wanted to ask about. Have you seen yeah. that DEI explosion? And what does that look like, like on the ground level in the outdoor community since you've started yeah. down this road of activism? Oh, for sure. Um, and I'm going to validate both of your experiences there because it is like, yes. CJ, it is true that there is diversity. We're not being amplified. That's why we're fucking pissed. Um, like we are out here doing this work for our communities day in and day out, but it's just not getting noticed by primarily the white leaders in the outdoor industry. Um, and same with you, Corey, as well. Like, yeah, this is more of a newer perspective taken on because I think a lot of these white leaders are seeing how impactful small things like language even has impacted the perpetuation of white supremacy and whiteness within the outdoor industry. Um, so yeah, like oddly enough, like technically you both are right, <laughs> but uh, yeah, on the ground, like I've definitely noticed, as I said before, like we're fucking pissed, like we're angry and we want some more systemic change when it comes to these outdoor industries and outdoor leaders um, to be making space or um, elevating people of color in the most genuine way possible that the that community wants to be elevated instead of being so extractive for commodification for extracting resources from these communities to make money you know hit that bottom line kind of thing um, which in itself is another problem of capitalism but um yeah so that's where we're at and a lot of these organizations are just like yo i am done partnering with some of these companies because they are just completely got their head up their asses um yeah so it's it's kind of a wild experience like i've heard some good experiences some bad some horrible some great like you know it's it really depends on how much work a lot of those leaders one, want to put into the organization, but also to like how much they want to put into themselves to break down their privilege as a white person, as maybe a male or a female, a white woman, white man. Um, you know, that's, that's also on them personally to take their own accountability path. Um, and if they're not going to do that, then it's going to cause more harm to these communities over and over again. And, and Corey, thanks, Vasu. When, when, I, when I'm calling bullshit on you, I'm calling bullshit on me. Yeah, yeah, because and and that's why I, I wanted to say it is that because I've been part of this industry for twenty years yeah. on the media side, right? So first in in specifically in skiing, and then more in commercial stuff, and then more recently in the in the companies Inc. Well in Rome, and not seeing myself as racially prejudiced. It's not the way I was brought up. It's not that you know so on and so forth always having an, a, a thought in my position that I, I want to see more diversity, right? Mm -hmm. In the outdoors. Why isn't there more diversity in the outdoors? Why isn't there more diversity in, in skiing? Why isn't there, you know, and these conversations, no shit happening 
as recently as 10 months, you know, very recently. So when we say 10 years, that's why I'm using that, that for myself, right? Mm -hmm. That, that sort of scale is that I've had these conversations with leaders within my company. I've had the conversation with myself. I've had the, I have spouted this narrative myself, which is, oh, well, you know, the brands need to do more. It's a geographic thing. It's an economic thing. It's, you know, just a lot of bullshit, right? Because, because of where we are in this moment, that is forced to what you're saying, Vasu, like a lot of, a lot more self-introspection and education. And when I spent the time, and again, I'm not, I I don't want to shame myself here. I'm not trying to do that. I'm just saying this has been my experience that when I spent the actual time to look into it, what I found was, what am I talking about? There's a shit ton of diversity and community that already exists. And here I am, I've been in this for a long time. How do I not know these people? How do I not know these folks? Why, why is that the way it is? And time, money, effort, power structure, all those things coming into play to say, you know, well, then that's why I push back and say that narrative specifically, I have heard that so many times and I have participated in it that there's no diversity, there's no diversity in the outdoors. And when you look deeper, there's plenty of diversity. It's just not being amplified, not being authentically celebrated. The relationships aren't there. And that's where I say onward. Like that's where I say we have to, we have to address that and say, first of all, that that, that part of the conversation is not, yes, it's 400 years old, but to say like, oh, this is something new. It's like, no, there have been people doing this work for real for a decade plus plus, and somehow the the power structure in the outdoor industry has not really authentically, you know, amplified that. Right. Exactly. And uh, yeah, I mean, I have the same, people say the same thing in Bozeman. Bozeman's 90 plus percent white. And everyone's like, oh, there's no diversity in Bozeman. I'm like, that's bullshit too. It's like, if you are actively looking to have a more diverse, inclusive space, like you have to put in action to be able to create those spaces. Um, And that's the same thing in the outdoor industry. It's like people have to actively try to work to include these voices at the table. And the fact is like that most likely will mean that you CJ or you Chris or whoever the white leaders of these organizations and companies are is like, they're going to have to like distribute some of their power and privilege to these communities. So their voices are uplifted because time and time again, this country is founded on racism and racist policies and racist procedures for 400 plus years. Like no matter how not racist you are, you're still going to be racist. You have to actively be anti-racist. You have to actively pursue and build these genuine relationships um, to be able to say like, you know, it's not that there isn't diversity. We just haven't reached out to these people in the way that they prefer to be reached out to. Yeah, I understand what both of you are saying. I I think I'm still, I'm, I'm saying, well, it doesn't really matter. I mean, honestly, it doesn't matter. Um, 
it's, it's, uh, I think we're lost in a semantic argument here. Um, but I, I, I hear what's being said in the past. Have you seen a, uh, like a, I mean, obviously there's been an uptick in the past two months. What does that look like and felt like? Um, it has felt, it has felt powerful in the sense that like, my black friends and relatives are being amplified and their work is being amplified. And I'm hoping this, you know, is not just a trend, which tends to happen a lot in social justice movements that it just becomes commodified and starts becoming like more extractive than anything um, that I'm hoping it's actually a genuine transformation in our society and our systems um, that keeps amplifying these voices and keeps adding these narratives to the main narrative that people are seeing. And because of these different stories and different lenses and shared experiences that are being amplified, like that is breaking down stereotypes, that is breaking down unconscious biases people have about black communities, about indigenous communities, about disabled communities, about queer communities. So it's like, you know, that's what is going to break down these barriers and break down these social biases um, is amplifying these stories, amplifying these narratives. Um, in the way that these communities want those to be amplified. You know, you can't have extractive storytelling. It has to be ethical storytelling. How do you, that, that brings up a really good point. Like how does somebody um, who isn't part of that community engage with ethical storytelling uh, and not be extractive? Is that possible? Oh, 100%. Um, yeah, I mean, for me, it's just, I just tell people to show up. Like, if this space is supposed to be open to the general public, like, show up and, like, talk to people. It's That's very uncomfortable, of course. Like, you know, um, in Bozeman, there's always powwows happening of all indigenous communities, like, coming together. And it's open to the general public to learn about these cultures, learn about what powwows are, buy their art, buy like talk to these artists, talk to the dancers, um, build these relationships, like how we usually do with humans, you know, just like support each other in ways that feels like they're being supported. Um, you know, so that's what I tell people. And, you know, I always go back to the, the model that we had at Eagle Mount. Eagle Mount is like 90% runoff volunteers, volunteers without disabilities. Um, we have over 2,000 volunteers that have helped out throughout all, like, 20 of our programs. But, um, you know, all these folks that don't have disabilities are learning firsthand with lived experience how to work with people with disabilities. And now we have over 2,000 advocates in the community that know how to talk about disability, how to interact with people with disabilities, how to be better allies for the disability community. So like, that's, that's so powerful. Like we need more models like that, that are engaging these, you know, separate communities and building bridges between the two. Mm -hmm. I feel like we need your time. Yeah. Sorry, Corey, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I feel like we need to, it's, it's, it's shitty because I feel like we need to have a second, like a, a round two, like we need to get you back on the podcast like immediately for another hour or two. We're just because I feel like we're just starting to just start to break through right now. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, and and so um, it's 
it sucks. But let's just, you know what? Let's just plan on that because I feel like, quite frankly, Vasu, you are one of the most important voices that we've had on this podcast to date um, since we started it, uh, you know, and, and, and your ability to articulate and be outspoken about allyship, about activism is unparalleled uh, in our roster of guests. Nothing against the, the, the other guests that we've had on. It's just that you have taken the time to learn this language and really know well. And I think the way you communicate it is digestible and understandable to our audience. So I really want to work hard um, to, 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 to do sort of a, you know, a round two with you and get even deeper into this stuff if you'd be willing to do it. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. I'm I'm all for it. I want to keep amplifying, well, not just my voice, but my, my my community's voice as much as possible, as well as the communities that I'm connected with. So, um, yeah, whenever that's possible. So you heard it here. Vasu just committed to a part two. <laughs> we got him. We got him. We got him back. Thank yeah. you. So let's let's plan on that. And and guys, uh, Vasu, just thank you so much for taking the time today. Um, I know it's, uh, I know it, it can be an emotional burden to talk about this stuff. And I appreciate you being willing to share with our audience, um, your voice. It's, it's just, like I said, it's really important and, um, and, and I appreciate it. It's not unnoticed. Um, yeah. um, I'm still very much open to talking a lot more about these more, you know, broader concepts that are very much influential to any and all communities that we're a part of. <laughs> All right, team. All See good, you. Corey. Thanks. Take man. care. Yeah. See you, Corey. Love you guys. Take care. Bye.